When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hey, what's going on, everybody? This is the Talking Tech, this podcast. My name is Daniel Tullock. It's boy, half a double H, half a pot. This is the Group G preview. So for the past week, we have been going through these World Cup groups. If you haven't listened to A, B, C, D, E, or F, please go back and listen to them. The World Cup starts this week. I hope you guys are kind of pumped up, happy that on Thursday we're going to be getting some good international football. I'm, I'm pumped. I'm ready. I'm excited for this to get going. But uh, we got two heavy favorites and then two teams that are good that people might not know that much about. So let's start with, uh, I don't know, Belgium or England. Let's start with England. With Harry Klaim there. You know what? I think Harry Klaim could be one of the top scorers this whole tournament. He had it right here. I think I think he might. I think this could be a good tournament for him. Um, Sterling, Rashford. It's just that the issue with England is that the, the attack looks very interesting. The, the midfield is a disgrace. The defense is an abomination. <laughs> I did, just, they take, uh, whoa, did they take Smalling, Jones, and Cahill? They didn't take Smalling. Okay. But they took Cahill and Jones. Oh, man. They took, they took Cahill. How did he take Cahill? <laughs> what? Did, they took Stones as well, huh? Yeah. Man, England's center back situation is weird outside of Harry Maguire, who I think no, and like, people like. Remember, England by tradition have always had one of the best defenses, but that's a sound completely subverted in, in itself now, where they actually have a pretty interesting attack, but the defense is horrible. I think England got lucky in terms of they're in a group with Tunisia and Panama, so I think they should get out of this group. But it's going to be interesting to monitor if kind of what, what would you call it, just the kind of Englishness. That happens to them at World Cups, where like it's it's probably gonna go bad somewhere no, 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 along no. the way. If ever there's a World Cup where that shouldn't happen, it's this one because I think a lot of English people now are like, you know what? We've been so crap in the past. For let's say they finished the bottom of the of the World Cup group four 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 year, years ago. So I think then hopefully now they are humble enough. We're like, yeah, we're still gonna be prideful of England, but I think English guys are like, look, man, let's just just go in there, let's just see how these young guys do. So they're not really expecting much from them. Yeah, I mean, it, it could be a case of like you you expect so little that if they don't embarrass you, you're happy rather than like, oh, we expect you to get to a quarterfinal and then you finish bottom of the group and now we're mad at you. So, yeah, it could be that. Um, so this is where we bring in our guest for England, Daniel Story um, at Daniel Story 85 on Twitter. Um, the deputy editor at Football 365, one of Carl's favorite websites that he brings up basically every podcast. But uh, yeah, this is our conversation with Daniel. Hopefully you guys enjoy it. 
Hi, my name is Daniel Storey. I work for Football 365 as the deputy editor. As we speak today, I have a new audio book out today about Paul Gascoigne and his time in Italy in the early 90s. So that's available through Audible and iTunes, etc. So you can get me on Twitter at DanielStory85. I think there's a huge separation between England as a national team and English football uh, in general, which is ironic, really, because we're the only country who every player in the national team squad for the World Cup plays in its domestic country. We have no foreign-based players. We're the only country to do that. And yet it still feels that there's a quite a massive separation between the England team and English football, certainly the top of the Premier League. I hope that's changing because more than in recent tournaments, recent major tournaments, England have uh, a core of players who play for top four clubs. The majority of the squad plays under Richie Pochettino at Spurs or Pep Guardiola at Manchester City or... Jurgen Klopp at Liverpool and I think you can start to see the uh, the benefits of that. I think they're a young, hungry squad of players and there feels for the first time in a long time a kind of feel-good mood. Uh, Gareth Southgate said that there's no pressure on these players, it's just a bunch of mates going out to a tournament to enjoy themselves and play some good football and they're capable of doing that, which it's a long time since it felt like that. I have my own issues, as everyone does with the Premier League, in terms of its financial bloating and possibly even doping. But I think it would be unfair to to tar the players with that brush. I think they are just a group of young players who want to succeed. Mm, okay. Um, so if you could kind of walk me through kind of the England's qualification process. As, as England typically do, kind of waltz their way through the group. You know, England, obviously, the only tournament, recent tournament they've not qualified for was Euro 2008, in which they were in a group with Croatia and Russia, who were, you know, who were strong. Um, since then, England have been incredibly fortunate with groups. Actually, other than the 2014 World Cup, they've actually been pretty lucky with groups across the board, both in qualification and major tournaments, uh, and have been again at this World Cup. They waltzed through qualifying. They drew two games, won the other eight, conceded only three goals, which that's the best defence of any team uh, in UEFA qualifying. But the caveat to that is, is the group was pretty poor. Slovakia, Slovenia, Scotland, and then Lithuania and Malta, who did very little. We won every single one of our home games and we won most of them, most of our games by two or more goals. So to finish eight points clear in a six-team group from almost the third, second or third game, qualification was assured. But no England manager will obviously ever be measured on qualification. It, the expectation is, is obviously to get to these tournaments and to do better than than Gareth Southgate's predecessors have. My, my question has normally been to people, you've done really well in qualification, so then what are the expectations of the country? I don't know if that question necessarily applies. I think because you mentioned that Southgate has kind of told this team, you guys can play free, there's no pressure, there's none of that. Do you feel like England fans kind of have that on board? Or do you actually feel like maybe England fans are expecting something this time I, around? I hope that they're, they're on board with that. I think certainly Southgate has a free role at this tournament. He never expected to be here. Obviously, Sam Allardyce started this qualification campaign and was uh, left his position after one game. And <laughs> Southgate then took over temporarily and then took over permanently. But he never expected to be here. So it's it's kind of a free role for him. No England, no major tournament is ever a complete free role for, for the England squad because we've seen in the past that even young players can have their careers, their international careers, if not decimated, then certainly uh, hampered by their underperformance international tournaments. But I think more than previously, I guess the best way to describe the mood is kind of suck it and see in this tournament. <laughs> we have to get through the group stage if we don't want to be 
pilloried back home. And I and and although no one wants to see anyone being pilloried, I think that's kind of fair enough. The the, the draw we've got with Panama and Tunisia, they are two not just the weaker teams in our group, but weaker the teams in the competition to my mind. So we have to get through that group. The draw has also been kind with the last sixteen in that we should play one of. Colombia, Senegal or Poland and and actually it maybe doesn't matter as much if we finish top of the group or second in terms of which team we play because I think those teams in Group H kind of much of a muchness and at that point we then get to the quarterfinals where nobody realistic in England believes we will get beyond the quarterfinals. Most people believe we should get to the quarterfinals. I kind of see anywhere between last 16 and quarterfinals as acceptable anywhere after that as unbelievable and anywhere before that as failure and it really is that simple I think. Are you confident that Southgate can do that? Uh, I, I'm. I never know with England. <laughs> I've, gone, I've gone into tournaments thinking the worst, and we've done all right, although not for a long time. Uh, and I've gone into tournaments thinking that we'll be good, and we've faltered badly. Euro 2016 was arguably one of the most disappointing tournaments for for a long time because we wrote the 2014 World Cup off as a, an experimental tournament for young players to see how it went and, and then aimed for Euro 2016. And then in Euro 2016, we fell into the same old habits and the same old implosion and and went home far earlier than we should have done, which almost makes 2018, again, as I say, again, a bit of a free role. The one thing I will say in Southgate's defence, and I really do like the guy, is that he seems to treat the players as adults there doesn't seem to be this molly coddling that there has been in previous tournaments where we wrap up big personalities and big individual players in cotton wool and you know tend to kind of babysit them a little bit this feels like a team rather than a collection of individuals and it's a long time since we said that i think and it's a young squad it's the young in terms of average number of caps for for the players it's it's the most inexperienced squad in the world cup which is Pretty extraordinary, given the the level at which some of those players are playing at club level. Hmm, so, so how do you expect Southgate to line up? Is it going to be? I mean, it better not be three at the back with the defenders you guys have. Is it going to be? Is it, is it going to be four four two? Is it going to be four two three one four three three? How do you expect the team I to line up structurally? It's going to be three at the back. I think, <laughs> um, he's tried this this system out. It is slightly bizarre in that he moved to three at the back because in in Carl Walker and Danny Rose. He, I think, rightly estimated that we had one of the best, potentially the best pair of attacking wingbacks in world football. Mm. But slightly ironically, we're probably going to end up with Kieran Trippier at right back and Carl Walker at centre back and Danny Rose possibly not starting and Ashley Young starting him over at left wing back, which is quite strange. But one thing that's come out recently from Southgate is that he's he's not going to play two defensive midfielders. He's only going to play one of Jordan Henderson or Eric Dyer and then give everyone else licensed to roam forward, which I hope and I believe means that he is seeing this as an optimistic tournament. Um, he doesn't want to go out with England kind of limping through the group stage and then sitting back and just getting picked off in the quarterfinals. He, he by all accounts, he is looking to give this a real go. And one thing that is eternally true of England teams and England fans and the England media is that any manager that tries to give it a go will automatically retain more goodwill than than one that tries to sit back, which was the accusation against against Roy Hodgson. Terry Venables and Glenn Hoddle, two of the England managers from my childhood, I don't think were particularly brilliant coaches, but they were good man managers and they played attacking football and they retained a lot of goodwill because of that. So if Southgate picks up on that, there could be a feel-good mood around this England team. 
that's not really the greatest segue into this into this next question. <laughs> I, I, I kind of wanted to focus on two players, and there isn't really a feel-good vibe surrounding Raheem Sterling uh, at the current moment, largely due to just stupid media stories and things of that sort. How do you feel that's going to affect him in this tournament? I don't know how to explain it, but I'm, I'm sure you know what I'm getting at. Like, Yeah, I, I do. I, I, I hope it doesn't affect him at all. It, it's strange. I mean, and the first thing to say is that the, 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 the nonsense stories about Raheem Sterling have been on the front pages of the British press rather than the back pages, which means that those journalists going out to follow England are not the ones that Sterling has a problem with. He has a problem with the, the so-called, and, and it is so-called because it isn't news, but so-called news journalists, not with the sports journalists. Um, England did a media day the other day and Sterling was very open and very candid and spoke about the issues that he's had with the media. But I think it's fair to say his issue is not with the sports journalists that will follow the England team around. And that, that helps. Um, I'm sure he's aware that he could quite easily become a a scapegoat if it goes wrong and that's to my mind is, is a disgrace that that's that that could happen I don't think any player should be vilified or victimized for anything that goes on the pitch as long as their behavior is good uh, and Sterling's always has been on the pitch um listen Raheem Sterling has got his head screwed on he's a good kid he knows better than to let that sort of nonsense affect him he also plays under a coach at Manchester City in Pep Guardiola who has improved him unfathomably as a, as a player um and that sort of coaching, that day-to-day coaching sticks with him and he's a far better player. The only issue that he has for England is that he hasn't scored for England in three years, which is extraordinary. I mean, partly that is because there's such a, you know, Harry Kane dominates the attack so much and and takes the majority of shots, but Sterling has also missed an an awful lot of chances. And if there's one area of his game that needs to improve the most, it's, it's his finishing. And in an international tournament, when, when, things get real in knockout games we need to be better at finishing our chances and so does he but that's nothing to do with the the media coverage that's just where he needs to improve and and I think there's a danger of expecting footballers to be robots and to be all things to all men Sterling is a brilliant quasi winger quasi number 10 quasi striker at the moment a very modern footballer and he does several things very very well Uh, and I hope that continues I just I just hope he can get a goal the longer that run goes on without a goal the more that people will ask whether someone else should have his place. Mm. You brought up a player, the the second player I have a question about. Uh, Harry Kane could, could perhaps, with all the kind of focus of, as you say, the news journalists on on Raheem Sterling, could that give Harry Kane a bit of a pass? Like, I, I guess there's this general feeling that Harry Kane really doesn't perform on the big stage, whether that be for at club level, where Spurs haven't won a trophy, or for England, especially at Euro 2016. Could mm. this be maybe a blessing in disguise for Harry Kane, that people are looking at Sterling and others and not necessarily him coming into this tournament? Or, or do you feel maybe that people are indeed looking at Harry Kane to be like the great hope of England in some way? Yeah, I think I think we need him to be at his best if we're going to succeed in this tournament. You're right to say that Kane has never been at his best for England. To my mind, there's a pretty obvious reason for that. And that's that at club level, he scores a phenomenal amount of goals because he takes a phenomenal amount of shots. That's not mm-hmm. it's not a criticism. That's just the reality. At Spurs, he he takes he took, takes more shots in the Premier League than any other player has in Premier League history. And that's Two reasons. Firstly, because Deli Ali delights in that space behind him, and also because they have a pure creator in Christian Eriksen. And I don't think there is there's arguably not a better player in world football outside of the, you know, the pillars of of Lionel Messi, etc., at finding space 
between the lines as Ericsson. And that allows him to get the ball into Harry Kane's feet. And when Harry Kane gets the ball into feet, he shoots. That doesn't happen for England. England don't allow Kane to have six, seven, eight shots from 20 yards or closer every game. And I think that's why he scores fewer goals for England, simply because he, he you know, he's a guy who works on his averages. And he, if he scores one in every four shots for Spurs, which he pretty much does, and scores one in every four shots for England he's going to score fewer goals for England than, than Spurs because we create fewer chances. We don't have a pure creator. We don't have a Christian Eriksen, which which makes it harder for Harry um, because, as I, as I say, he is the leader of that attack. We are very, very reliant on him. There are a number of teams in this World Cup who are reliant on a single player and you know, Argentina are reliant on Messi, Poland are reliant on Robin Lewandowski, Egypt with Mo Salah. But England, for all their talent behind Harry Kane, are very dependent on his goals because other than Danny Welbeck, who I don't think will play many minutes in the World Cup, there aren't any, many other, you know, there aren't any other regular goal scorers for England. Mm. You know, a, a, another question I've been asking people is, is there any player that the world might not know about that uh, that you feel like on this on this stage of the World Cup that, you know, he's going to get his big move wherever? Again, I think a lot of people know this England squad, but Southgate has handed me kind of a, a better question to ask people from England in that he's taken some players that I don't think people thought he would take in mm. maybe like Trent Alexander-Arnold. He's taken Ruben Loftus-Cheek, Harry Maguire, but maybe people kind of expected that one. Uh, Fabian Delph, he's also taken. Mm. And uh, he didn't take Joe Hart. Just hearing those names, which one of those is kind of more interesting to you in that way? Yeah, it's odd in that the squad is very, as I say, it's the most inexperienced squad at the World Cup. And yet Southgate's first choice team is actually pretty settled, I think. And and the only players who could possibly force their way into that are players like Phil Jones or and Gary Cahill and Maguire might be fighting for one position. And actually Stones and Cahill are already very experienced. Um, Loftus-Cheek, I suppose, is the interesting one in that I think Trent Alexander-Arnold has been taken for experience as much as anything else. I don't expect he's going to play that many minutes out in, in Russia. Um, but Ruben Loftus-Cheek is playing in a in a very important position for England and has obviously been taken instead of, ostensibly instead of Jack Wilshire, um, who I think if he'd have gone might have played a number of minutes. Loftus-Cheek is very much part of this new England in that he's come through the youth teams, the highly successful youth teams. He played for Southgate's under-21s. He plays in, you know, he, he plays for Chelsea on loan at Palace last season, but plays for Chelsea who are have an extraordinarily successful youth setup. He feels like one of those who could use this tournament as a conveyor belt. I wonder whether he will get as many minutes as he would like, because I think that advanced central midfielder is is not really a position that England use. We we will use a pivot in Eric Dyer or Jordan Henderson, and then we will have a collection of attacking midfielders in terms of Jesse Lingard, Deli Ali, even Raheem Sterling. So I wonder where he fits in. But Loftus-Cheek is probably the player in that squad who opposition teams will know the least about. Who do you think is going to win the World Cup? I change my mind every day. It's the one thing I've <laughs> um, The think, reaction to this question has been the most funny thing. Yeah, I, I, I think it should be, but I don't think it's in the top half of the draw. I think I don't think Didier Deschamps is a, is a good enough coach to take, to, to take a brilliant French squad there. I think Spain are decent but and are resurgent, but not quite at the same level as, as Germany, Brazil in the bottom half of the draw. I think Brazil have the best squad and I think that Germany have the most know-how and obviously won it last time. So... It's between those two, and I will say Germany. Okay. And last question. Is there anything I haven't asked you that you find particularly interesting about this England team that, that you think people might want to know or should know? 
I think the, re- the, the the really interesting thing about this England squad, um, which is certainly different from any that's gone before in a major tournament, is the sheer number of players who are able to play in multiple positions. England, by definition, tactically are, have been rigid historically. You know, Spain, France, more fluid, but England, incredibly rigid. Um, and we've had players who can play in set positions. And to such an extent that we had this whole Frank Lampard, Stephen Gerrard, Paul Scholes debate where we had to play players in their one position and crowbar them into a team. Mm. This squad is incredibly fluid. You've got Trent Alexander-Arnold who can play in midfield or right back. You've got Carl Walker who can play centre-back or right back. You've got Raheem Sterling who can play central or right. You've got Jesse Lingard and Deli Ali who can play basically anywhere across the three attackers. You've got Eric Dye who can play centre-back or central midfield. So the really nice thing for me about this England squad is the sheer fluidity of it. Whether that's enough to make it greater than the sum of its parts and take it beyond the quarterfinal, I don't think so, but it's certainly a step in the right direction. Let's talk Panama, man. Do you know anything about Panama? Um, An absolutely amazing effort to knock out America. (laughs) That's an amazing thing. And I think... um, this is their victory mm. of getting here. I think I think they have the old, they'll, they'll have the oldest team at the World Cup, and I just think that the very fact that they, they managed to make it it's it's a freaking island, man. That's 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 that's, that's an amazing thing. So I think for Panama, everyone from for Panama, it's it'll just be amazing where while you're seeing your country for the first time ever on the biggest stage. I think it's for them they'll, they'll just go there have fun, man. This is the, the this is the beautiful thing about the World Cup is stories like this. Mm. where obviously you know it's still a competition you still want to see who does the best but you know for stuff like Panama's like yeah like that is amazing just to see that and for people from Panama to go and just say wow we're experiencing this thing for the first time in my life seeing a country at the World Cup so I think that in itself is their victory the only thing I know about Panama really is that they have a canal I don't really know that much about Panamanian football which is why we kind of talked to David Sataka Panamanian football journalist who's going to be going to Russia Um, Mm. this is our conversation with David my name is David Sakata. I'm from Panama. Uh, you can find me on the Twitter and Instagram at uh, David Sakata. That's my handle. I work. Uh, I have a, a startup I created a couple of years ago. It's called Diario Pro. Uh, I currently do daily radio show here in Panama called Rock and Sports, and I will lead the on-site coverage for the World Cup for Cable Mundo Sports Network here in Panama. But Panamanian football, it comes from a nation that does not have the structure, does not have the logical structure to make it to a World Cup. Uh, There's a lot of struggles happening in our environment. We have one stadium, one big stadium, Robert Fernandez, where most teams have to play eventually, not only the national team, but also the local league. It's also a country that has a lot of passion and love for the game. It is predominantly a baseball nation, but has had that little soccer bar growing in for the last couple of years, helped in part by the so-called success, or rather say progress, of the national team in the local regional tournaments like our Gold Cups and our Copa Centroamericanas. But we were looking to get this last step in. It happened just months ago. And as I said, I think there's going to be a change in regards to how we are seen and what we are able to achieve regionally after the World Cup. 
from what I gather about your qualification, the last few days were a bit, you didn't know if you were in, you didn't know if you were out. I think you guys scored like a last minute goal that kind of got you in the tournament. Like if you kind of explain Panama's qualification process. That final definition is exactly how it happened. Uh, A last minute goal is what has us thinking about Russia. So the qualification process, it began 2014 when the federation decided to, to go with Bolillo Gomez, former Ecuador and Colombia national team uh, coach. And it started after after a, a very tough and, and complicated moment, losing last minute. Just as we got in last minute, we also lost last minute. So we know both sides uh, of the game. We, we lost last minute to the U.S. And that took us out of the probable play of round against New Zealand in, for, for Brazil. So, so we've been with heartache for a long time until this qualifier came in. And things started to change once Bolillo came in. But it's still the same core of players that we had in our last qualifying round. So during this run, we were able to not lose at home, which was the best thing that could happen. Uh, winning against Trinidad and winning against uh, Costa Rica in that final game and uh, tying against Honduras, USA and Mexico at Romer Fernandez. But we were also able to secure one important tie, uh, a draw against Costa Rica over there. We were able to win against Honduras and then there was a defeat against Mexico, Trinidad and the US. So that was that was like a summary of the results. But if I give them to you as they happen uh, chronologically, it was a roller coaster. However, we were only outside of the qualifying spot up until that last 4-0 defeat against the U.S. in Orlando. That was the only time we were outside of qualifying, either to the playoff or to the World Cup, until Roman Torres uh, kick and score on the 87th minute against Costa Rica that took us directly to the World Cup. This is your first World Cup. Am I wrong in that? You are correct. So first World Cup. What what are the kind of expectations for Panama in general? Is it just not to embarrass yourself? What would you say were the Panamanian expectations in that way? As I said at the beginning, like we don't have a structure to become a competitive nation or even to say that we are a nation that will continually go to the World Cups and qualify. And, and that, and when I say structure, I'm not talking about buildings where where 11 guys are going to be able to face opposition and play soccer. Now, that, that's not what I'm saying. I, I'm saying that uh, some teams in our league are able to produce young talent, are able to to help them progress either to MLS, Mexico, or Mexico second division, or or, or European uh, nations uh, among the, the lower part of the top 20. I mean, we don't have that structure. That's a structure I, I say we don't have. Uh, because buildings we do have. The other part, you know, the, the part that you have to organize and and, and and look ahead as to what you want to, where you want to be in 10, 12, 30 years. So based on that, I mean, I cannot go and say, oh, I hope we make it past the next round. I mean, th- there's a hope that, that comes to, uh, from your gut and from, um, from you know, following the team and all that. But, but there's also the reality. And when you face Belgium and England, I think it's pretty clear that not only the favorite, but who the stronger team on the field is going to be. Uh, so what, I'm, what I believe these guys are going to do is, is show their best face, try to enjoy something that has never uh, happened before in the country and work hard, really work hard. I mean, I've seen this first week of training and coach has put them to a lot of physical work, which I think it's it's necessary to get in top shape before the World Cup. We are a 4-4-2 team. 
that, and that's how we qualified for the World Cup. However, the coach knows that England and Belgium are very, very fast teams. And, it's, and I'm not talking about how fast they can run. I'm talking about the pace of their game. It's too fast to what we're used to play. When, when it comes to that, he, he sees it's probable that Panama will have to play uh, with a different formation in the World Cup. And what he's aiming at right now is a five-man uh, five uh, defensive line. We're going to have uh, three guys will be in front of Jaime Penedo uh, with two guys running the corner. Four guys in the in the middle of the field, 5-4-1 is probably the, the, the formation we're, we're going to end up playing. Because the pace of the game is going to be very hard to control. And if you'd have asked me, uh, as soon as the, the draw was over, this same question, I would not believe that my answer was going to be this. Because once I saw the games in March, we faced Switzerland and we faced Denmark. And I think that was just a little bit of what we have to expect from the teams in the World Cup. There's just a fast-paced game we're going to be facing. That's why Bolillo thinks 5-4-1 is the best way to, to hold that as much as he can. Mm, so if we could kind of just look at the pieces inside of that formation, who would you point out as some of the key players? Because people are going to be watching England. They're going to be watching Belgium. Who are some players that you feel like watching this player, the world's really going to get to know who they are? So, I mean, we, we, we're going to have a, a good group of veterans. Not not all of them are going to be starters or not all of them are going to start uh, every game. But we have a couple of players that uh, like Jaime Penedo, who used to be in the LA Galaxy. Uh, well, we mentioned Roman Torres, who's a guy that's going to be on the field as well. But there's a lot of youth here, even if it doesn't seem like that. Playing right now, Michael Murillo, who is the New York Red Bulls. I think this guy is going to be one of those names most people are going to talk about and wonder and, and speculate where he can land up, uh, end up next. I mean, this is a guy that uh, there's a lot of hope in him in regards to his ex exposure to to first-class or world-class soccer after the World Cup. Uh, there's also this guy, Edgar Varsenas, who's currently playing in uh, uh, Mexico second division, but has already stated that he will, or he has signed some sort of a commitment to Cholos uh, in Liga MX. So I'm mentioning two names, but there are many other names. There's this kid called uh, Ricardo Avila. He plays in Belgium with the under-20s of Ghent, and he did not make the process with Bolillo for the qualifiers, but he has been in the four games that came after that, uh, four FIFA games that came after that. So these are three names that have all different, how, how can I say it? They, they have all different circumstances as to how they got to the team. Who do you think is going to win the World Cup? Who do I think? Wow. <sighs> <laughs> <laughs> the reaction to this question is always funny, man. Yes, yes, because, I mean, you asked this, and I'm sure most people are always wondering the same thing in their heads. I, I see a strong Brazil lineup. It doesn't have to be a strong defense in Brazil because their midfield and their, and their attack is just... It's just impressive. I mean, I, I, I see a lot of strength in Brazil. I cannot leave my, the current champions of the world, regardless of any struggle they might have. Germany always has to be on the list. Even if you don't like them, if you don't want them, they have to be on your list if you don't want to uh, at least say, oh, I, I mentioned them. At least I mentioned them. France, <laughs> I like the French call-up. Uh, there's also Spain. And then I have, I mean, I like that Argentina does not generate that emotion, that people have a lot of doubts with Argentina. But that that's what I like about that team, that it doesn't necessarily, I, I don't see them as favorites right off the bat, but you can never count out a team that has Messi in them. So I'm going to give you 
in no particular order, I'm going to call Brazil, I'm going to call France, and I'm going to call Argentina's favorites right now. Okay. Last question. Is there anything about Panamanian football or this Panama team that you feel is really interesting that you think people should want to know? Yes. There's a lot of things. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you have you have a little bit of time, so give them yeah, to me. Yeah, I mean, we, there are so many things. I mean, uh, whenever you get to see this team uh, against Belgium, the first time you see Panama on the field and you're wondering, how did these guys get here? I mean, there, there's, there's such an amazing story behind all this. It does make for a great story. You have to understand that this country as I said initially, has a predominant favor for baseball. We are a baseball nation. This is a baseball nation. The the amount of baseball players produced, it's really above what baseball, uh, what football players can do. So there is no structure here. Uh, coach has said repeatedly that he believes that the process was fast forwarded and he expected to lay the groundwork and he wanted to qualify for the World Cup. But working here, he understands that we, we are ahead of our time. I, I really want people to understand that, yes, there are a lot of veteran players on the field. And this is not a nation that can do what Jacques Mleur did with Germany, that he did not call two or three players because of their moment. You can't do that here. I mean, these guys, you have to call them. They've been through thick and thin. They have 10 to 12 years with the national team, and it's it's the perfect send-off. We, we're going to have at least five to six players that are going to retire from the national team, if not from their careers, once the World Cup is over. And anything that happens is going to be a important moment for the sport in Panama. This could be the moment where a single event, which is the biggest event ever, can really affect change in the nation. Not only in football, not only sports in general. There, there, there's a high chance that whatever happens in the World Cup really creates an impact uh, on the country. We were looking for this for a long time. It finally got here. Many generations have passed, and it finally got to a point where we can say we can see the nation in the World Cup. So put them close to your heart. Enjoy what Panama can do. And whatever happens, I hope we are able to surprise, if not one, many, uh, when the World Cup comes. Tunisians are pissed off at me. Because again, I've, I've not really, I, I don't really think that they will go through. And they've all said, wait a minute, don't you dare downgrade us. Because they say like, you know, we are actually rated as one of the best African teams. So I think Tunisia might want to go there to, to trick the people. I don't think they will. But yeah, may, maybe they'll be a lot better and maybe they'll um, give Belgium and, and England a bit of a tougher game than they would expect. So This is one where like, I know a lot about England. I know a lot about Belgium, at least relatively. Mm. But Tunisia and Panama is one of those ones where like, what are these teams? What do they do? Like, who are they? So I talked to my guy, my hair football journalist, covers North African football. So we, we sat down and we had a little chat about Tunisia. And this is that conversation. So my name is uh, Meher Mizahi. I'm an Algerian freelance journalist covering football, mostly in Africa. Follow me at on Twitter at Mizahi Meher. And I mostly freelance uh, for the BBC, but I do work with basically whoever will pay me. So the, the Guardian as well, um, ESPN. Uh, so, so yeah, look out for my coverage ahead of the World Cup. Every, every summer, two to three million Algerians cross the border uh, from Algeria and they go to, to Tunisia uh, for their summer vacation where they have better tourism infrastructure, better hotels, nicer beaches, etc. And, and it's just nice to leave the country as well. And it's a chance for a lot of Algerians to, to interact with a lot of foreigners, people they wouldn't meet in their country because Tunisia has visa-free travel. So for me, my, my biggest experience was, you know, it was in a border village called the Tbarqa, which is just maybe 20 minutes from the Algerian border, just on the other side. And I remember watching the pickup match uh, one one night it was um 
after I'd spent the day in the resort on the beach and just wanted to go for a stroll out in the city. And the amount of technical football I saw from these kids playing, I was, I thought it must have been hallucinating. I was like, these guys have to be professional players. It's impossible for, you know, street footballers to be this technical. I think to this day, it was the highest technical match I've seen that wasn't being played professionally. And that's sort of the image that stuck in my mind when it comes to Tunisian football. With Moroccan and Algerian football, these nations, they rely heavily on their diaspora, on their players that are born abroad in France or, or in Morocco's case in Spain and in the Netherlands and Belgium. Um, and these people, they have you know experience coming through some of the biggest clubs in the world, people like Riyad Mahrez, people like Hakim Ziyech, Mehdi Benatia. Tunisia doesn't have that kind of diaspora. They're one of the smaller countries in Africa. They only have 10 or 12 million people there. So we, we sort of see them as, as a little brother, but they're a little brother that's so organized and disciplined with their, their institutions that they often get the better of us in, in sport. So expect them to be disciplined, organized, but also very technical as well. Mm, so could you kind of walk me through qualification? Um, I think they had Libya, Guinea, and Democratic Republic of Congo in their group. How did that go? Exactly. So going into this group, everybody knew that it was going to be the DRC or Tunisia that were qualifying for a few simple reasons. Number one, Guinea were coming off of, it sounds crazy to say this, but they still had a little bit of an Ebola hangover. So because for two, three years, they weren't able to play at home due to the Ebola crisis, them, Sierra Leone and Liberia. So they were just getting back to playing in Conakry and Guinea. And, and that was taking some time as well as they were having um, some coaching problems that they had Luis Fernandez there who didn't get along with the country's biggest star, Ibrahima Traore. And so they brought this uh, a local coach, Mohamed uh, Bangura, Lapikanfora Bangura back with him. They, they had some good results, but it still seemed a bit too early for them. They were still in the air a bit. And with Libya, they were having the same problems, but not for Ebola, but because of the, the security situation in Libya with the after effects of what, what's going on post Gaddafi. CAF and FIFA deemed it too risky to go play matches in Libya. I want to say it was Claude Leroy with, with Congo Brazzaville who went to go play there and he said he heard tanks and shots in the air and a lot of teams were complaining about the security situation. So uh, Libya were actually playing their matches in Tunisia except when they played against Tunisia and then they played that match in Algeria. So because those two teams were still unstable, the heavy favorites were either Tunisia and the DRC and they won all their matches except when they played each other. So really the crunch matches, it was that double header. They played each other back to back once in Tunisia and then once in Kinshasa. The DRC had the better goal difference going into those two matches. But when they played in Tunisia, Tunisia ended up winning. I believe it was 2-1 if I'm not mistaken. And again, the crunch match was the one in Kinshasa where Tunisia had to sort of maybe hold them up for a draw or, or maybe sneak a win over there. And they were losing until the 70th, the 80th minute. They ended up scoring two goals. And it really showed much of Tunisia's strengths won't be on paper. It's the intangibles. It's discipline. It's organization. It's togetherness and resilience. And that's a lot of what their coach brings to them. Nabil Malul is somebody that's very close to the players and transmits all of that to them. So yeah, that's what we saw in that in that second match in Kinshasa. And they ended up drawing that, ma drawing that match 2-2. And after that, they never looked back. They won their remaining two matches and they qualified. What are the expectations for this team going into the World Cup group? Now, it's a tough group. Many would say Belgium and England are the favorites to advance. But as you say, they're a well-drilled, organized team who have technical players. Just, just in general, maybe from the outside looking in, but then also for Tunisians themselves, what do they expect if you have a beat on that? I think for both, for, for outsiders looking in and for Tunisians themselves, I don't think either are expecting them to get out of this group. As you mentioned, Belgium and England are the heavy favorites. Tunisians know if they have any chance, they're going to have to beat Panama, who are no slouches as well. You know, when you're a supporter, there's that always that irrational part of your mind that tells you that it's possible. You could do something. And they've, they've looked really good in their friendlies in March. They beat Iran, who the best Asian side out there. They beat Costa Rica, who they believe is similar to Panama in, in the March friendlies. They've reinforced their national team with four or five players from the diaspora, even though they don't have, again, as large of a pool as Algeria 
in Morocco. Players like Elias Khiri from Montpellier or, or goalkeeper Mouaz Hassan or defender uh, Johan Benelwan who plays at Leicester City. So they did manage to, to reinforce their squad. They have, again, great spirit. Before the last transfer window, the January transfer window, 17 or 18 of their players were playing in Tunisia. And this is a, wow, okay. a group that's been playing together for four to five years. They're a band of brothers who really leave it all on the line when they play against each other in the league. I've seen matches that where they've literally thrown chairs at one another, paint <laughs> cans, uh, rocks, everything. But when they come together for for the Carthage Eagles, they manage to put that all aside and, and really come together as a group. Um, so they were really playing most of their football in Tunisia leading into January. But in January, there were four major players that ended up moving to Saudi Arabia on loans. You had a big exodus of players actually from Morocco, Algeria, and Tunisia. You had 15 players in total that went to Saudi Arabia uh, to replace a huge Saudi contingent that went to Spain. What the Saudi clubs did when they lost their best players were it was pretty much say, okay, who can come in and do a job quickly? And they picked North African players because they speak Arabic, they're Muslim, they'll, they'll have an easier time adapt, adapting to life in Saudi Arabia and the money's better. It was a big question in Tunisia. Would this, would these moves be a positive or a negative thing? And I think globally in the end, I think they've been positive because these players have went from clubs like Esperance and Club African that have so much pressure and, you know, where the facilities maybe aren't the best. And they go to Saudi Arabia where they're playing in state-of-the-art stadiums. They have the recovery methods. Um, so I think it was six months that will do them some good. They were able to, to rest a bit while playing uh, in the Saudi league. And I think it's going to do the, the national team some more. But just again, when you look at that Belgian team and that English team, you think they just have a bit too much firepower. Again, England is a big question mark. People don't know if they're going to win it or if they're going to flunk out in the, in the group stages again. Maybe if England disappoints as as they have so often done, I'm sorry, uh, but as they have so often done, maybe Tunisia <laughs> can sneak out of this group with Belgium. Um, how, how do the Tunisians play in terms of their formational style? They've been fluid uh, throughout qualif qualifying, but towards the end of qualifying and into these March friendlies, they've been playing a 4-3-3 with a 1-2 you know, midfield, uh, so like an inverted triangle in midfield with one uh, water carrier, a defensive midfielder, and, and two box-to-box -box midfielders in front of them. Um, so they've been playing that 4-3-3 with very, very attacking fullbacks. That's their main strength, are those attacking fullbacks. They don't really have a real striker. They're going to be playing, I believe, with attacking midfielder Wabi Kazri as a false nine. Uh, they were mostly relying on their very talented attacking midfielders to create and score goals, which they got from all over the pitch. Um, but that's a little, yeah, a very quick tactical breakdown of the Tunisian team. It's mostly a 4-3-3. If you could pinpoint a couple of players who you feel like against Panama, against England, against Belgium, this guy's really going to have a good World Cup. It's such a shame because this World Cup was lined up for Yusuf Msekni. He's this side's talisman. He's the North African attacking midfielder. Everybody loves to watch the mercurial, super talented, you know, the in the in the mold of Riyad Mahrez or Hakim Ziyech, who could score, who can assist, who can dribble. He's really one of the best players, I believe, in the world that's not playing in Europe at the moment. And he had such a, a big part of playing in, quali in qualifiers especially that match against Guinea uh, in Conakry. He scored a hat-trick, if I'm not mistaken. And he really, again, it, it, really, it was all panned out for him. He was like, I think, 27, 28 years old, heading into his prime. And really, I think on the third or fourth last match day of the Qatari League, where he plays uh, for big, big money, he ended up doing uh, his ligaments. So he ruptured his ligaments and he'll be missing the World Cup. And it's a big, big miss uh, for this Tunisian national team. However, look out for uh, their two fullbacks, Hamdi Naguez and 
Ali Malul. Ali Malul plays for Al Ahli in Egypt. His uh, compatriot Hamdi Nagaz plays for Zamalek. Uh, so the two big Cairo clubs, they really like to go up and down those flanks and they'll be attacking. Also look out for uh, central midfielder Mohamed Amin Ben Amor, a uh, central midfielder who's not really good at any particular thing, but does everything else so, so well. He just keeps everything ticking. He's a metronome. And so is for Jani Sessi, the, the other central midfielder. They're really going to be, uh, I think, the key to this Tunisian national team getting out of this group because they're going to have to control the midfield against the likes of Belgium and England. And they are capable of doing it, but they're going to have to be uh, aided by everyone else around them. Who do you think is going to win the World Cup? It's a, a tough one. I think, <laughs> no, I think the favorites are, everybody knows who the favorites are, right? You have Spain, you have Brazil, you have Germany. But I think if you're going to take one nation and say they're favorites to win it, I think Brazil have looked good since they've brought their new coach in. I think Neymar is going to be back. I think they have a good mix. And I think they're going to want to right the wrong of, of 2014. So if anyone, I think Brazil have a, have a decent chance. They look, they've looked good in qualifying. Yeah, I'm going to go with Brazil. Mm. Which African nation do you feel is going to go the furthest? I think if Morocco can get out of their group, I think they can be the side that will be the first African nation to make it to a semifinal. Ooh, okay. Yeah. It's bold, I know. <laughs> but they have they have a group of death with Spain, Portugal, and Iran. But Ooh. that Moroccan team is just so good. I'm telling you, people are sleeping on them a bit. It's really everything. It's the momentum that their country has sort of been building. It's the names on, on the team sheet, and it's also the coach. And really, all those elements mixing together at, at just the right time. I really think if they get out of their group, because they're in Group B, so they'll be playing whoever gets out of Group A, which is not a very, very difficult group. We have Russia, Saudi Arabia, uh, Uruguay, and uh, Egypt. Egypt. Yeah, so I think they can beat any of those sides on their day as well, and they can move on to the quarterfinals. So uh, Hervé Renard has big game experience in big tournaments. Remember, he's, I think, uh, one of two African coaches who's won the Cup of Nations with two different nations. So yeah, I, th I think they could do it. Morocco. All right, so last question. Is there anything about the Tunisian national team that you feel is particularly interesting that you feel people might want to know or should know? Go, going into the World Cup, it was a little bit controversial when they brought in these reinforcements because there was a lot. There's a lot of times there's players that didn't really contribute to the qualifying campaign and just come in at the last minute and and you know capitalize on their chance of playing for a World Cup. So in Tunisia, for example, there's Wissam Ben Yedder, who was of course a striker at Sevilla who knocked out Man United in the Champions League. And what I liked about the Tunisian national team was that they've been trying with Ben Eder for a long, long time. And they tried one more time this year. And, he, and he, again, he said he was hesitating and they just closed the, the Ben Eder case. But they did bring in four, four or five new players. Elias Kheri, Johan Ben Alwen, and Moaz Hassan. And uh, I think it's going to be interesting to see how those players integrate. These players are all players that have hesitated with the Tunisian national team before. And now they've integrated. And I think it's going to be interesting to see if they can come in without creating too many problems. If they can, I think that's going to be a big plus for this national team going into the World Cup. Now, for the past, what, three major tournaments, I think, include like Euros and World Cup, Belgium has been everybody's dark horse, but I don't think they can be considered dark horses anymore. I think dark horses mean like you come from nowhere or you're an outsider. I don't think people necessarily consider Belgium an outsider anymore. I, I, do. I do. I don't. I don't. I think people know exactly what they're going to get when you play Belgium. Um, you can't On be a dark horse if I see you coming. Look, I, my I mean, Martinez is their, is their coach. What do you expect? I'll drop a bombshell. Maybe this is a bit too early to say this thing. I say England win this group. That's my hot take. Why? The Martinez-Belgium combination, I just think, don't think it works. And I think England beyond the group then, look, who, who knows? They'll, they'll, they'll probably get to nuked. But I think <laughs> that they'll win this group. The Belgium national team is it's a weird one, especially like the whole Nangaland situation and Martinez and... That whole thing I just find confusing and weird. 
you're an attacking team and you're just going to leave the best defensive midfielder that your country has at home? Like, so you can play Axel Witzel, who plays in the Chinese Super League? Well, basically, like, he has beef with Nangola. I don't know what the beef is, but he's got beef with Nangola. Apparently, he smokes cigarettes and he has a bad attitude. Yeah, but so, uh, so, so what? But, you know, when you have Hazard, when you have De Bruyne, when you have Lukaku, when you have Michi off the bench, when you have guys like Dries Mertens who just come in and play, Carrasco hasn't been in China that long. They're stacked up front, and I do not agree with you in any way that they finish second. Any chance Belgium can win this? Excuse me? Any chance chance Belgium can win the World Cup? No. With Martinez as coach, they have a 0% chance of winning. Do you you think this Belgium golden generation will ever win a major tournament? Um... If the Belgian effort continues to be arrogant, then no, they never will. If they get the right manager that can actually work on the defense and, and their tactics and make them much more professional going into games, then yes, 100%. They, they, they only they have three game. left, you would think. Yeah. They have this one, the next Euros, and the next World Cup. Because by then, Hazard will be 31. Maybe you could give him Euro 2024, he'll be 33. Like time's running out on Belgium. I mean, they seem they, they seem young because we've watched them from when they're like basically kids, but they're old now. Um, or not old, but they're at least veterans now. I mean, time's sands running out of the little you know timer thing, whatever those are called. Hourglass, hourglass. Yes, hourglasses. <laughs> I was doing like the most shit. Like, what is this thing that where the sand comes to the middle and then it gets big again? Uh, but yeah, man, time's running out on Belgium, and I don't know if they will ever win one. The France team is going to be there in the Euros. Germany's going to be there in the Euros, and then once you go to the World Cup, you got to deal with like Brazil. You got to deal with Argentina. You got to deal with like Colombia. All these teams, man. It's a it's a good collection of talent, but I just can't trust them. But I do think they're going to finish first. So this is our conversation with uh, Sven Kloss, who's at Sven Kloss on Twitter. So yeah, hopefully you guys enjoy our conversation that we had with Sven. Hello, my name is uh, Sven Klaas. I'm a Belgian football journalist. I work for uh, several Flemish newspapers. I'm also well connected with some Belgian football uh, players, uh, the Red Devils in the Premier League. So uh, my Twitter account is at Sven Klaas. And when they have questions about the Belgian football team this summer or even uh, after the summer, they can always contact me. Yeah, everyone is talking about uh, the golden generation. Everyone is, is talking about them. They know they are good, but yeah, now it's really comes to win prizes so they didn't do that at the european championship they're getting older now so everyone is hoping but yeah also expecting that we will go to the semi-finals this summer but it will be really difficult could you explain how belgians qualification went yeah we were of course the big favorite we didn't lose one match so we won nine of our ten matches only one uh, draw so that was really wonderful but uh I have to be honest, it's it's not the credit of our coach, Roberto Martinez. Yeah, we just have our players and uh, they can win a match easily. They have a lot of individual qualities. Uh, you, you know, Eden Hazard, Kevin De Bruyne, Romelu Lukaku. And of course, in the goal, we have uh, Thibaut Courtois. So uh, they they won very easy. But at the World Cup in uh, Russia, yeah, there will be some uh, tough opponents. So that will be a real test for them. Expectation is really high, but yeah, we also saw the draw. They expected to play against Germany or Brazil. So uh, that will be a good test for them to know what they are worth. So, um, yeah, expectations are high. Semi-final, of course. Uh, I don't talk about uh, the final because I think other teams are, are better, like Spain or Germany, of course. So uh, I don't see that they will end up in the final. 
how does the team play structurally? How does Roberto Martinez have the team set up formation-wise? Uh, yeah, of course, uh, Romelu Lukaku up front. Our wingers, we have uh, Eden Hazard or Yannick Carrasco. Also for the defenders, uh, it's yeah, maybe he can change from three or four uh, defenders. But of course, yeah, like in, in the last games, we also play very attacking. So maybe against Panama and Tunisia, we can do that. But against yeah, bigger teams, like we also played against the friendly game against Mexico with three strikers, we really had some problems in the back. So we have a lot of individual qualities, like everyone knows, but the team, now they're playing six weeks together. So maybe the, he can form a good team. So in the past, yeah, there always were some injuries. Also with uh, Vincent Company, of course. Uh, yeah, we have a strong base, but uh, yeah, it will depend on some details. And of course, uh, Romelu Lukaku, he feels really the pressure. He also gave a press conference today so that he still had some uh, issues with the Belgian fans because they don't accept him uh, due to his uh, scoring goals every week at Manchester United. Yeah, there are some doubts in the team, of course. So uh, I also have to add, is Belgium a dark horse? I always receive that question uh, nowadays. So uh, I have to say, not anymore. So we were a dark horse at the European Championship, but for the World Cup, I don't think uh, we will be a dark horse. So the players are, yeah, like they say, we are more experienced, but they're also getting older. So uh, a lot of them uh, will be their last uh, tournament. So um, yeah, it's a pity. And uh, we also missed uh, Rajanandigalan from AS Roma. There was a lot of speculation about it. A lot of rumors so um, like the insiders know uh, he loves smoking and uh, sometimes he comes late and yeah that was a problem for Roberto Martinez so to have a, a team of 55 people together and uh, he couldn't do that so that was his decision he got a lot of uh, issues with it with the press with the fans but uh, I can conclude that we have an excellent team the coach isn't excellent but of course the players have to do it on the pitch in your personal opinion do you think it was a, the right decision to leave him in Rome or do you think he should have gone despite the kind of conflict mm. with Martinez yeah you have to play another system and he isn't going to play that system on the World Cup so it's better to don't take him with you so uh, and yeah Nangalani wants to play so when you put him on the bench he could be a problem so I understand it so I, I fully understand the coach uh, his decision but but of course he's popular um he's a, a little bit rough the fans really love him they adore him and uh, but yeah you have to see him on the pitch it's an excellent player of course he he scored two goals uh in the semi-final of the champions league with AS Roma but yeah the Belgian team plays another system so uh, he's a big fan of Axel Witzel plays in the Chinese Super League against yeah players uh like you and me to be honest uh, <laughs> Yeah, I saw the games in the Chinese Super League. Uh, they score a lot of goals, so uh, it's 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 huge football. So uh, is it an upgrade, really, to go no, from Wilmots no. to Martinez? There wasn't an upgrade. It's <laughs> no, I have to. It's like I say, it still are the players who have to do it. It's Kevin De Bruyne who has to give an excellent pass from the back, or Romelu Lukaku with an excellent header, or Drew Merton. So it's still the players who have to do it. And there still wasn't the system to play at the World Cup so they could win matches. And we also saw that in the friendly game against Mexico. They really had problems with that. So they have their individual qualities. But like I said, it's, it's not a team. And also the coach, yeah. We have to be honest. Everyone can be coach of this Belgian national team. It's <laughs> Yeah, everyone can be in the dugout and, and say, walk there, do that, uh, give a pass. But they're excellent players. They know how to play football. So they still have the same problems. There's still no solution. Are yeah. there any players who made the squad that people might not know that much about? who you feel like 
they're going to have a really good tournament. No, because there weren't really any surprises now in this team. So uh, some young guys, but not that I say this is uh, yeah an, a, a surprise. Like the, like Wilmots took uh, Daivo Corrigi to the World Cup in Brazil. Then nobody knows, and he uh, got a transfer to uh, Liverpool FC. That was a bit of a surprise. I knew it was good, but this year is, is isn't the case. So it's still a lot of players, and uh, also our bench will be very good. So uh, I don't think he will drop a young player uh, play. How do you feel Eden Hazard and Kevin De Bruyne are primed for this tournament? Yeah, of course. Everyone is watching uh, at Kevin De Bruyne or Eden Hazard. Everyone is expecting an action. But of course, uh, the coach from the other team, he wants to block that. So, uh, And then they play, oh, Eden Hazard was awful. Or Kevin De Bruyne, he didn't even touch a ball. But yeah, that's of course... Uh, the job from the opponent the, from the coach from the opponent uh, so he did a good job so i hope they they succeed they're really focused on it so uh, they're taking a, a short holiday so i i hope yeah it's it's a joy to watch you also saw the games from chelsea and uh, and kevin de bruyne when they yeah when they were really magnificent they gave passes you couldn't imagine someone could give that pass so uh i hope it will be a joy to watch at the world cup but like i say uh also the coach uh, from the opponent team will do his job so uh, it will be very difficult and i don't hope our only option will be to bring in another attack attacker like michi bachuai or expecting headers from um Fellaini so uh, but yeah of course we have luxury so maybe I'm too negative I don't know but we will see at the World Cup who do you think is favorite to win the World Cup yeah I have to say Germany it's it's yeah good players good team so um when I see their games it's what I expect to see from football so also very efficient so they don't need a lot of opportunities to score goals yeah they have a lot of experience with big tournaments so um I expect a really good tournament from uh, Germany I hope England will do it will do a good job but not in the group stage <laughs> um you know that could be wishing death on them you know i'm going to say the same uh, at bbc radio 5 live so uh. <laughs> <laughs> all right is there anything interesting about this belgium team or the just the belgium national team in general that you find interesting that you think people should know or might want to know maybe that yeah like like i said uh Romulo lukaku so he today gave a press conference that uh he misses a lack of uh, respect from the belgian fans so um he said today uh i only received one uh i don't know how do you say it uh when they applaud when he left the field so they only did that one time in his nine-year career at the belgian national team and he found that a pity so um he mentioned that today at his press conference so um there are still some doubts of course because yeah like i say we see them playing every saturday afternoon at our club they play really wonderful and then fifty thousand people go and watch them to see them play in brussels and yeah they don't perform like they perform at their club but like i said the belgian national team is of course another system so you can't expect that and i hope uh Romulo lukaku will uh, give them an answer at the world cup in russia so hmm. You know what? I, I, have, I have one more yeah. thing, and I don't know mm -hmm. if this is going to make the podcast. No problem. But I'm curious about it nonetheless. If it ever existed, the disconnect between players in the Belgium team who speak French and players in the Belgium team who speak Flemish, or I guess Dutch, was that ever existent? Does it still exist? Is that, or is that something that you know it's kind of overblown yeah in the past but i have to be honest yeah there were some clans in the team from the from the flemish and and, and the walloon uh people uh, in the squad but nowadays everyone is talking uh 
fluently three or four languages, so that isn't a problem. Is the most dominant language in the squad English? Yeah, I probably think so, yeah. Because, yeah, they all play in England, and of course everyone can talk English. But it isn't an issue anymore, so uh, I can say it isn't an issue anymore. In the past, it was a really big problem. Some players want to be don't want to be in the same room with other players to sleep and things like that. But hey, we're 2018, uh, we're well-educated people. Okay, they earn millions a year, we don't, but uh, they're wise enough. If we're going to do our, our group previews, I think Belgium finished first. I think England finished second. Tunisia probably finished third and then Panama last. England first, Belgium second, Tunisia third, Panama fourth. Okay, so if, if England win the group, who do they play? Basically, I've already seen this. England could make the quarters because I think if England win the group, I see them facing Senegal. And that's the kind of game that England would win just to piss me off. <laughs> and then England, the, and then quarters, yeah, yeah, quarters, they, they get um, flown back home. We got Group H coming tomorrow. It's our last one on Tuesday, so stay tuned. If you haven't listened to A, B, C, D, E, or F, go back and listen to those. Some really, really good conversations that we have with a bunch of people. Um, I'd like to thank Daniel, Maher, David, and Sven for coming on and helping us out. The links to their podcasts, Twitters, books, whatever, are going to be in the description of the podcast. So I really encourage you guys to go check them out. You can follow me at Daniel to look. You can follow Have Hope at Have Hope Hearts. We are at Talking Tactics collectively on Twitter, Facebook, SoundCloud, Instagram. We're on iTunes as well. Subscribe on iTunes or wherever else you listen to podcasts. So, uh, yeah, we got Group H coming out tomorrow. Hopefully, we'll see you there. And uh, yeah, peace. Peace out. Sports Social Podcast Network.